Hello everyone. Welcome to Chobi Mela podcast series. This is Munim Wasif and today we have with us Naim Mohammed and Amar Alfiki. Both are joining us from New York. Naim Mohammed makes films, installations and writes essays about utopia, borders and families. He's author of Prisoners of Shortik Itihash, Kunsthalle Basel 2014 and editor of Between Ashes and Hope, Chittagong Hill Tracks in the Blind Spot of Bangladesh Nationalism. Trishipat 2010 his films Tripoli cancelled and two meetings and a funeral were shown at Documenta 14 in Castle Naim's work is shown in several edition of Chobi Mela this year along with Shomari Chakma Naim is presenting a new work Autobiography of Drowned Amar Alfiki is an award winning photojournalist and a filmmaker based in New York City Amar studied medicine at Alexandria University in Egypt and assisted as a film medic during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. Shortly afterwards, he began photographing. In 2013, he co-founded Janaklex Studio for Visual Arts in Egypt. He moved to US in 2014 due to the ongoing crackdown on activists and journalists and began documenting the life of fellow Egyptian immigrants. Amar Walk has been featured in various international publications including the New York Times, The Guardian and many others. Amar is currently a photographer fellow with New York Times. Welcome Naim and Amar, over to you. So thank you very much Amar for uh, joining us this evening. Uh, well it's evening in New York at least. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, thanks to Munem Wasif and the Chobi Mela team in uh, Bangladesh for uh, putting together this series of conversations around photography for Chobi Mela which is the um, longest running photography festival in South Asia and in Bangladesh and there's a great deal of interest in your practice and i have my own interests as well um, from the bangladesh perspective certainly your experiences in egypt and your experiences since then including the experience of being in exile perhaps uh, there are people in the bangladesh context who can definitely relate to that I had a separate uh, reason for being particularly interested in your photography because your photography and that of others of the New York Times was in some ways my my connection to reality during the pandemic uh, because mm-hmm. like many I was stranded in New York from March onwards till December December is the first mm-hmm. time I went back to Bangladesh and it was utterly unplanned I was planning to be mm-hmm. back in Bangladesh even in March and then Two weeks became one month, became six months, became nine months before I could finally go back. And and this first, nice. yeah, and this festival opening in February, as scheduled, is actually a major miracle and tribute to people working there. And but in that time, one of the things that I really held on to was the media reporting because of the photography, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and the view of the mm-hmm. pandemic and the preparations for the pandemic. Um, that we were able to see from these pages and um you know one of the first images by you that i really noticed um the title of the caption is splendor in the grass which is a reference to you know classic american cinema but it's a single lonely sunbather on the lawn i'm not sure if it's prospect park yeah that was prospect park yeah that was prospect park right right and it was on the front i don't know if that was the first front page image by you during the pandemic. Oh no, it wasn't. No. Uh no. I've, I've had a couple. Okay, but there was a, that was the first one. You know what can we talk about that image a little bit because it's a beautiful image can be read in many ways. Uh you, you know the times was of course, you know, not just doing news gathering but also projecting a certain story of the world at which certain points there was a continuous sense of crisis and I remember that image giving a sense of not necessarily going back to normal but small sparks of normality within that Could you talk mm-hmm. about that image a little bit um so uh that was during the summer and i was an assignment for the national desk doing some weather features uh which are usually like the hardest kind of assignments uh some people would think they are like a little easy but if you're like out like if you're covering a snowstorm you're inside the storm and if you're covering like a heat wave during a pandemic you're actually living through it yourself first hand right 
so I live near Prospect Park, and when I got the assignment from the national desk, I just picked up my gear and headed to the park and was trying to find um, an image that illustrates a heat wave in the pandemic. So as m most people know, um, especially those who live in New York, New York, like at some point was more like a ghost town during the pandemic. Uh, so if you go to like Manhattan, it's just like a deserted Manhattan, you like, like you, like you'd never imagine, right? Uh, Prospect Park was not usually empty, like even in, in like the early phases of the lockdown. But that day was was like pretty remarkable. So uh, I saw that like lone bather in, in Prospect Park surrounded by like very distinctive Brooklyn buildings and 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 surrounded by emptiness, basically. And I thought that was like the photo of the day. Um, so I filed it right after I shot it uh, from my camera and uh, it made it to the front page and I thought that was a really nice uh, call on my editor's end uh, because I think it was uh, was very telling. Mm. Yeah, I actually, um, now that you mentioned this Prospect Park, I remember that on one of the first sunny days um, when my friends finally convinced me that, look, it's the park, it's safe. And, you know, we went out heavily masked. Uh, we were all the very cautious group. We were, I think it's the main bowl, the area which is slightly indented and where people play soccer sometimes. And everybody's sitting far apart. And then suddenly there are these two people who see each other from two sides of the area and then run towards each other and they hug. Yeah. And I just remember everybody just sort of turned and stared at them because we're just like, who yeah. are these people who are embracing in the middle of a pandemic yeah. who don't live together? Yeah. Presumably. That was pretty reckless. So it was, uh, you know, it was intense. Um, I want to ask you about some of your other photography during the pandemic, but first, um, uh, want to connect this back to uh, life in Egypt a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it's some irony that um, you were studying uh, to be a doctor. You were almost done, as you have mentioned. Yeah. Other interviews, including the uh, the Muslim in America episode. Um, that's mm -hmm. on uh, Spotify, and you actually almost graduated as a doctor, except, of course, the mishap that seemed to have been a retaliation for your role as a medic uh, in Tahrir Square during the uprising. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go back a little bit. Um, so, I studied medicine for six years, and uh, that started in 2008 right after I finished high school. And uh, the only reason I wanted to study medicine is because at that time my parents had gotten divorced and I just wanted to make them happy and they always wanted me to be a surgeon. So I was like, you know what guys, I'm just gonna do it for you. But then like once I get the degree, I'm free to do whatever I want, right? So um, that was 2008 and um, my humanitarian work started um, on my first year in, in medical school. I started like campaigns to develop um, IC units uh, because we were like the public hospital and in, in, in Egypt, like public hospitals are not good. So I thought like we should be like more proactive and, and just try to do something about it instead of just like sitting and waiting for like um, government funding. Uh, and and apparently the administration didn't like that. so. Um, uh, I've had like some, uh, yeah, like bad, uh, uh, encounters with, with, uh, the school administration and, and security, um, forces. But you had one, gone so through six years of medical school. Like, you know, like, you still, still find, find police on campus, campus, right? It's not like campus police. It's like higher level of, of, of like um, security forces, national security forces, because um, student movements are kind of like very influential uh, politically, right? Uh, 
Anyway, so I, I, I did that for, for a little bit. And, and then in 2011, when, when the revolution broke out, I, I, f- I found myself on the front line as, as a medic, as a field medic. Right? And I thought that was my duty um, to employ my, the medical knowledge I have to help people um, on both sides. I was not on, like, uh, specifically on the protesters' side, though, like, we're always pushed to be on their side because if you try to get near the police line, you're, you're basically killed, right? Or in best uh, situations, you might end up in jail. Um, for God knows how long. Uh, so yeah, I started doing that, and 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 on the front line, I, I I saw like photographers documenting what was happening, and I was like, wait a minute, that's very interesting. Like people are dying, and they're taking photos. Like, what is this? What are they doing? Right. So I go home and I start like um, googling. Photography, revolution, conflict, war, and then I was introduced to conflict photography and photojournalism. And since then, I knew that that's something I really want to do for the rest of my life. Um, I started taking for like silly photos on my uh, Zenit TTL film camera and and then my uh, Nokia phone, uh, and 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 I just like fell in love with it. Uh, two years later. In 2013, um, I was invited by a friend of mine to um, join a team in founding a studio for visual arts um, in a production house in Alexandria, Genocles for, for visual arts. And this, the, 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 the studio existed before, but that was like a reopening for the studio. And I was um, appointed as an art director, uh, which in the beginning, I thought it was it was very challenging because I didn't know what I was doing. It was a lot of like self learning and, and studying and, and stuff like that, but it was successful. And on the, op- like after the opening day, we, I found like news outlets writing about like us and, and stuff like that. And, and, and we used to get some really decent funding uh, to support different uh, projects. Um, and uh, on my final year in, in medical school, um, I just had a bad encounter with my dean and, and uh, he banned me from doing my surgery exam because of uh, my history in, in, in humanitarian work. And, and that's something the government, including the school administration, did not approve, did not like. Um, so uh, I had the U is visa. I had the US visa and, and then my, my, my father was like, why don't you go to um, the United States for a couple of weeks until we figure it out. And the plan was uh, just to stay here in the United States for like a short amount of time and then go back once everything is figured out, uh, do my final exam and then just move on with my life. Maybe study film in Germany or study photography in Poland. And I didn't really uh, know what the next step would be specifically, but I knew that I wanted to work with cameras. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, unfortunately, a few weeks later, my, my dad called me and he told me that I couldn't go back because of like a politically motivated, uh, court case. Uh, the charges were dropped like two years ago, maybe three years ago. But at, at that time in 2014, I I feel like in uh I feel like a <laughs> like a spiral of uh, depression and despair and uh, just like I was not prepared for this. I really wanted to go home. I have several friends from Egypt who were similarly stranded elsewhere once the case. Well, yeah, the fun part is like they are mo- most of them are actually high school friends, uh, and they all studied medicine, pharmacy, law. Uh, arts, so, and yeah, and and the destiny brought up all together here in in this country. I I smiled when you uh, said why you first went into medicine, and then also how you first thought of taking photography because of seeing other people taking photographs at Paris <clears throat> Square. Uh, my father's a surgeon. Uh, cardiovascular. Um, he's long retired, of course, uh, for twenty years now. But he 
says that in the 50s, the reason he went to medical school rather than engineering is because one of his uncles said, well, his brother is already an engineer, so you should study medicine. So it was almost like, okay, we have one engineer, so you should be a doctor. And that's just really why he went. Yeah. Um, and then he was an obsessive for doctors. I think it's the same. Sorry, I think it's the same all over the world. Right, right, right. And then, you know, I mean, and then he, he, did, he didn't get involved in something that caused him to not finish, so he finished. But he was always taking photographs. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. most of those didn't um, uh, survive. And unfortunately, he never took photographs in the hospital. So it's also interesting that mm -hmm. as a doctor, what he thought was interesting was just photographs of family members around the house, which are very interesting. But I would have loved to have seen some photographs of them. Um, hospital itself. I think that's why in particular that part of your biography compelled me where I thought, oh, that's interesting, was a doctor, almost a surgeon. And of course, you could have continued to be a photographer as a surgeon because there are examples of uh, people who are surgeons and writers, for example, right? Yeah, but I think it's hard if you want to pursue a career in photography to do it with something else uh, because it takes a lot of, lot of time. Well, just this, yeah. I was just going to say, just this week, you know, when we were trying to make our plans, I got the clear sense that you yeah. were always on the road. And I think you just came back today or yesterday. Last from, night. Right. Yeah. yeah. From a pretty crucial. Yeah. And I'm presuming that you're also on the road more rather than flying now because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't really fly in, unless it's like um, necessary. Right. Um, so when I was covering the, vi the final presidential debate in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, just like, I don't know, like an 18 hour drive, maybe uh, I did it instead of flying because I didn't feel like really safe flying during these times. And all my editors and the company really supported me and uh, provided me with all I needed. So that was great. Um, just to make things clear, I'm from Alexandria, Egypt. I'm not from Cairo. So I didn't really witness uh, all the protests in Tahrir Square. I was there um, like... Actually, it's funny that we're doing this interview today, February 11th, because that's the day Mubarak stepped down uh, in 2011. So it's uh, it's been 10 years since uh, Mubarak stepped down. And that day, uh, 10 years ago, I was in Tahrir Square witnessing witnessing it happen. So it's really interesting how how things like go full circle. I, I remember um, it as a very universal moment because uh, although there were several uprisings uh, and you have said in another interview that, you know, you feel that they were saying Arab Spring sort of takes away some of the specificity. Uh, but although mm -hmm. there were several uprisings in several countries, Egypt was, of course, the most closely followed by the media. Uh, so here in the US, it was closely followed in my circles, especially, which are, you know, a lot of my Arab American friends. And I just remember following the news every day, continuously mm -hmm. tuning into Al Jazeera from the internet. And then the sort of the day that he stepped down, the it's kind of extraordinary. I hadn't experienced that before, like hour by hour reporting where people are saying, OK, we think he's going to step down. OK, he's stepping down and then he steps down. And then, of course, as we learned, stepping down isn't <laughs> the end of the story um, yeah. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I think one reason also I, um, you know, wanted to bring up the issue of you being a doctor, of course, is coming back to the last year, is that you were uh, trained as a doctor, now a photographer, uh, photographing during a pandemic. Um, and mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of the images, um, and we'll hopefully get to talk in more detail about some of them, including the Bronx series, a lot of your images are about life continuing in stutters, you know, like the one moment where a sunbather can be in the park, perhaps the next day yeah. it couldn't be. Those slight moments of normal, which is why I said mm -hmm. the New York Times perhaps was also trying to project, okay, there is some normal, all is not lost. Uh, and then, you know, the reopening, that series that you've done during the reopening. Um, did you spend any time in hospitals? Um, not really. I was usually on the streets. Okay. And that was a choice of just how the reporting assignments went or your own? Uh, just like how it, no, I was not really assigned to a hospital. Uh, so, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there was also a change in the tenor of the reporting in general in America, where I feel, as I experienced it, March and April, there was a lot of reporting from inside hospitals. I feel partially to convince people this pandemic is very serious. Here is evidence yes, of what's and, happening. Yes, and also... Uh, 
like during that time, the first few months uh, when the pandemic hit, I was uh, I hadn't started my New York Times fellowship yet. And I was uh, a photo editor with ABC News. Uh, so I was usually working from home. Uh, except for like some f a few photos like here and there whenever like I would go to the park or like I would just pass by a hospital or something like that but I was not really working in any official way uh, beside my like photo editing duties um, so I was like following everything that was happening around the world from my little corner in, in Brooklyn basically that situation has changed now because you are yeah then the, the fellowship started in June um, so by the time it started, the big, the big, the biggest story was the George Floyd protests, which I covered extensively for the New York Times. Right. Okay. So that was a in shift, York right? In New York, right, right, right. So that was also a shift in how your image making, your images were also going into the New York Times exclusively at that point, because um, I know your byline oh. started appearing much. More. There was like a little bit of. There was like a little bit of overlap between my freelance work for the New York Times and then being on staff as a photographer fellow. Uh, the pro I started my first assignment for the Times, I think, on June 1st or June 2nd. And then a few days later, the fellowship started and then I was treated as staff. Right, right, right. So uh, uh, let's talk about the George Floyd series, because that is, I think, when I really started seeing your uh, byline in the photos. I often look at the bylines mm -hmm. uh, for the photos in the physical copy. Um, you know, and during the Floyd series, your byline came up, the Bronx series came up. You know, there was something very particular happening there also that, as you mentioned, you were working from home. Um, and I know that when the Floyd protests broke out, you know, some of the headlines even said, and just like that, America is open again, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that after this long period yeah. of isolation, suddenly people were out and they weren't just out, they were out for these protests. It was bodies together. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody wearing masks, but still it's a lot of people in close proximity, a lot of people seeing each other. I saw a lot of my friends for the first time at the George Floyd protest in Brooklyn. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're all wearing masks, so we can't recognize each other either, um, yeah. except from the eyes. And then when we see each other, again, back to that embrace, we're not sure if we should be embracing or not. And mm. generally we don't. So we did the yeah. elbow thing. And you've got that. I think you've got a photograph of Biden uh, and touching Pence with his elbow. Yeah. And the first time I saw that elbow thing was actually, I think, Biden and Sanders, perhaps somewhere. Um, or some like Maybe, like yeah. a political deal. That's where the first time I saw it on, on on camera. But but you were out there. You know, you had been a medic at Tahrir Square, and here was this uh, you know American protest movement, which you know I think it was an extraordinary movement. Although we would say perhaps that not everything we had hoped would come out of that has happened yet. Um, you know, could you? I mean, talk about that a little bit because now it's a very different Brooklyn you're navigating, right? Where suddenly there's. Uh, <laughs> Um, abundance of people on the streets again. So uh, I think the protests broke out on my last day as a photo editor with freelance photo editor with ABC News. So uh, my shift ended at like 6 p.m. I think. And uh, there was a protest um, supposed to happen outside of Barclays Center in, in Brooklyn at 7 p.m. Or like six thirty maybe, and I will. I live like nearby, you know the area, and uh, so after signing off, uh, I just picked up like one camera, one lens, and I just decided to go and document what was happening outside of Berkeley Center and in, in my capacity as as a journalist, because I thought it was very important to uh, document and 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 photograph. Uh, so. When I arrived, like I, I saw like so many photographers and journalists and I asked myself like, so what kind of work I'm here to make? Like there are all, all these great journalists and great photographers out here. So what's the point of me being here? Right. And that's a question I usually ask myself, like, why am I here? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to say? Right. And then just like a like an idea struck struck me and uh, the the Egyptian revolution happened because of what? Police brutality, right? And the George Floyd protests happened, happened because of what? Police brutality. So it was the same uh, motivation, right? The same um, reason both uh, movements 
uh, broke out. So unfortunately, during the Egyptian Revolution, I was a medic. So I didn't really photograph the Egyptian Revolution. I have some photos like here and there on my phone or like on my uh, point and shoot camera, like my film camera, but nothing uh, substantial I, I could hold onto or like I can show. And then I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just walk around and find the same scenes or similar scenes to what I witnessed in Egypt 10 years ago or nine years ago. Uh, and it was more like photographing memories, basically. So most of the scenes I really photographed are very similar to other things I witnessed uh, in Egypt during the Egyptian Revolution uh, in 2011. And that was the motivation. So the first two days I was photographing for myself. And on the third day, I got a call from the New York Times uh, to freelance for them. Uh, and, uh, and that was my approach. I was like trying to, like when you're an, when you're an immigrant, at some point you kind of belong to two worlds, right? And I thought the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd protests were kind of like the bridge, uh, between my both worlds. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I, um, looking at those images, the captions, of course, are written by the, the photo editor, I suppose. Um, mm. But it seems now that you're describing this, there's a parallel story going on, which is that you are photographing the Black Lives Matter, police brutality, George Floyd, during pandemic protests with uh, Tahrir and the Egyptian Revolution in your mind, and maybe if not recreating, of course not recreating, but perhaps looking for shadows and echoes. Uh, but your photo, photo editors see something else, right? Your photo editors are seeing an American story. And, you know, usually, unless it's a dedicated photo text project like the one you've done about loneliness, uh, which I'd also like to talk about, you don't get to define the text so much. How does that work out? Because you've got, you know, you've got a larger project. Right? You've got echoes of the Egyptian revolution here on the ground in New York. But what gets printed is an image and caption that's illustrating a current news story. Um, and then you see it, you see the caption before it comes out, I presume. Um, but then do you feel you also need to bring in some of that other memory somehow in a later version of this project? I think I heard somewhere in, I think I heard in the Spotify interview that you're also working on a book. So I don't know if that book is where some of these things come back out. Well, the book is a different story. It's, it's more about Islam in the United States, uh, which is like comprised like different kinds of uh, chapters and um, stories um, that I've been working on for the past four or five years. Uh, but anyway, um, I don't really think about captions when I'm shooting. Uh, when I'm taking a picture, I think all that matters is your vision. And um, after my friends back home saw the photos, they resonated with them. They were like, That's, that looks like Tahir Square, that looks like Alexandria in 2011, right? And then I knew that I, I succeeded in, in, in doing that. And um, I had the same conversation with some of my editors, and they were... Um, Fascinated by like the approach, uh, basically, uh, which I like really appreciated because it was um, like a valuable recognition of both experiences. Mm. I mean, you we as the reader, of course, see both the image and the caption. We read them together. <clears throat> so your prospect park image of the lonely sun bather is an image of some sort of return to normal or a brief return to normal. But the caption is Splendor in the Grass, which is a evocation of a 1961 film, which is about sexual awakening with Natalie Wood, who, you know, has a whole sub-narrative because of uh, 
dying at sea. So, you know, I always feel like there's two conversations going on. The one that you first look at the image and you think about it, and then maybe later on in the day, you might look at the caption and think, oh, that's interesting. So uh, there's all of that going on. Well, I cannot, really, I cannot really talk about the text. That's up to the text editors. Uh, I don't really, we don't usually engage in these conversations unless like it's like a bigger project. But for like news stories, uh, it's different. Right, right, right. Um, so let's talk about the Bronx series. That was in-depth reporting uh, and specifically now focusing on the economic impact, the damage mm -hmm. of the pandemic, basically, because before you had the loneliness, but that's economic damage, the worst hit neighborhood, I think, right? You talk about yes, that series. Yeah, it, a, it starts with this gorgeous image, uh, beauty in, in the middle of the tragedy of the sunset at the subway station. Uh, and then yes. it goes into inners of houses and then outer shots as well in the daytime. Well, like, um, first, like, I'm very influenced by film. So usually when I'm shooting a story, I think about it more as a, as a movie with like the op the opening scene and then details and, and then emotions and motion and, and stuff like that. And usually like to each story I work on, I think like there was, there's always like a very specific uh, song or track I listen to while thinking about the story and how I want to shape the story um, and, and approach it visually. Uh, Going to West Farms was was a like an eye opening experience for me because everything that we take for granted, uh, especially during the pandemic, like I was lucky enough to have a job. So many people lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods, and they were struggling, right? So uh, when I was assigned to the story by the Metro Desk, uh, I. Andrew, my editor, was, are you interested? I was like, I'm definitely interested. Uh, and I have an idea about how it feels like to be struggling financially, given like my early years in the United States where I used to sleep on the subway or the sidewalk, sometimes like spending days or weeks just eating like um, bread and cheese if I was lucky, right? So I thought... The story was important because everybody was, in the beginning, was focusing more on uh, the health side of the story, less more about the uh, economic impact, right? Um, so I was assigned to the story, very specific kind of people, uh, certain um, individuals that uh, different reporters interviewed on like an extended amount of time. Uh, I think I spent more than two months working on the story, just going back and forth, uh, just trying to do my best to tell the story the best I, I, I could. Um, and you just go to West Farms and, and it was like another world, basically. Like nothing, and here's the thing, like most people think that New York is just like this fancy, glamorous Times Square with all the billboards, but yeah, but it's the reality is different. And uh, I I think it's one of the most important stories I, I was like privileged to tell during the pandemic. Um, people are struggling to find housing. Um, people struggling to find food for the kids. Right. And it, it was devastating just to see that. Right. And then you just come into your car and your car and you drive back home and you order food and, and, and it's like nothing is happening and everything is fine. But it wasn't fine. Right. I mean, did you uh, not that it's required for you, but just out of curiosity, do you know what happened to them later? Did any of them? Did any of those Bronx residents get to any sort of recovery? Because, of course, there's been a lot of national debate about recovery, stimulus, economy. The election was fought on that basis above everything else. 
Um, and of course, certainly we're reading now about all the things that are being done, you know, the stimulus package, the numbers are such, you know, when people start talking trillion, I don't, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to write down that number on a piece of paper, but I'm just wondering because you, you know, you were with, you were in intimate contact with these people who were on the sharpest edge of the economic fallout. Um, I wonder if you have a sense of how they're doing now, whether there well, are any returns to normal for them? Well, uh, unfortunately, because, and that's like when you're working for a newspaper, you just move on to the next story and the next story and you, you, you travel and you're not there anymore. Uh, but I think I saw on Twitter, one of the reporters, um, when she tweeted out the story, uh, I think a good amount, a good, um, like number of people reached out to her offering help to, uh, some of the characters in the story, uh, which I thought was, uh, like really touching. Right. The New York Times always used to have this series. I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to have this thing called the neediest cases. That yeah, not, yeah, um, yeah. Where they would highlight it. And I think the result would be pretty direct help, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, but that's like a different kind of, uh, so it's just like a needs cases fund. So I think people, I don't know like exactly what happens, but uh, I photographed some assignments for, for the column and uh I don't really know the dynamics or the process of I, collecting donations to um, people in need, or I don't know if that that's what they do, but uh, I think it has uh, some powerful impact on these individuals in, in terms of like improving their, their lives. Um, the other series you did that was entirely your own in the sense of both the photography and the text was the loneliness series, which was about uh, you know, a group of New Yorkers living alone in their apartments. I think all single or uh, solo individuals, uh, you know. Um, could you talk about that series? Because that's one where we got to see Amr, both the photographer, but also you wrote the beautiful text around it. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an entire project. Um, sure. I usually think about loneliness and what does it mean to be lonely? Um, especially in a place like New York City. Uh, but I, I think many immigrants um, would share the same feeling as, as me. Um, so uh, when the pandemic hit, that sense of loneliness was very profound, was amplified. And, uh, and that's what we do. We think we look for our stories and other people's stories. Um, and that was one of the main reasons, like I've always wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, but then I, I decided to be a journalist, uh, because in the beginning I thought I was, um, uh, like very self-centered. They thought my experience was worth telling, but I don't think the same way about my experience anymore. It's just like another human experience, but I think what makes it worth telling is making it more universal and connecting with more people. And that's like the, the beauty of journalism. Just go out every day, you leave your house and you meet people. And you not just meet them, you sit down and listen to them. You listen to their stories, right? And I think that's like the most beautiful purpose someone could have in their life. Um, so during the pandemic, I was like, okay, I, I'm not the only person who feels lonely in this city. I need to find people who share the same feeling as me, right? Especially with the holiday season was approaching and I don't necessarily celebrate these holidays, uh, but for them it was important. And I was wondering what it would look like uh, spending the holidays by themselves. Which right? holiday was it? It was Christmas or Thanksgiving? Right? The story was between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I started following people before Thanksgiving and up until one day before Christmas or maybe a couple of days before Christmas. Um, and I just started looking for people who were willing to um, speak with me and, and let me take their 
pictures and document their lives in loneliness and solitude. Um, and uh, when I pitched the story, uh, I also proposed that I, I write the story myself. Uh, I didn't really want to start the story, like the, the piece, um, like talking about my experience, but that was my editor's uh, idea to, to do that. I think it was, it made it more relatable to a lot of people. Mm. You mean your experiences with loneliness in New York? Yes. As I said, like, I don't think my experience is worth telling. <laughs> it's just like, uh, you know, like millions of people, what makes it unique, right? Right. Well, it's what they call the lead and the tie-in um, that makes people understand why this person is um, telling this story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that was a beautiful series. And uh, I've heard people use um, the word depression and deep depression mm -hmm. for their condition during the last one year, who are the sort of people who eschew that kind of terminology, who really uh, go out of the way not to you know, psychoanalyze things or conditions. And yet I think nobody has been able to escape the fact that you know, when three months become a year and when there's no, no end in sight, um, mm -hmm. as well as the worry that this might not be the last also, right? That's the one of the things I think about. If one pandemic can happen and be accelerated by human movement uh, all over the yeah. world, um, another one like this can also happen. You know, I was looking at some of your older images and of course, I don't know the volume, how much was getting published before, how much was getting published after. But I remember looking at some of your older images and thinking, oh, this is a normal life. You know, I think I mentioned to you earlier, you know, you first of all, of course, you see the coverage of the people and you go, oh, there was a moment when Elizabeth Warren, we thought might have been the presidential candidate, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, of course, very much still um, part of the equation. But then you had Cory Booker, you photographed him, this beautiful black and white image. And Cory Booker for a moment was perhaps going to be the next African-American presidential candidate until he wasn't. You know, you photographed Roya Rahmani. Um, you know, and then, of course, I remember looking at one image of um, Weinstein uh, coming out of the car to face his trial and thinking, mm -hmm. oh, right, there was a time when Weinstein was all we talked about because that yeah. case was breaking. And then sandwiched between these images are... Um, you know, there's the protests against the uh, Muslim travel ban. There's, you know, Michael Moore at a, you photograph Michael Moore at a protest. There's all of, you know, the images at JFK, uh, but sandwiched in between, I remember there are these images from Fashion Week and there's the New Year's Day celebration. And you look at mm -hmm. the, you know, the eyeglasses people are wearing and it says 2020. And I just remember thinking, yeah. what must it be like, you know, your images are a moving document of what we were concerned about. And then suddenly there's a sharp change, you know, certainly sitting, uh, you know, I have a memory of being in Dhaka in February, 2020, and just being in these interactions where I remember thinking we had no idea what was coming. And the fact that the pandemic had already hit China, nobody was talking about, and it was something that was right. over there, um, you know. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because of course your reporting uh, or the nature of your coverage completely changed. You know, you, you know, you started one of your series was Northern Lights, you know, then your Muslims and Guns series, all of those things. And then, you know, you're going through, I would say Fashion Week, New Year's Eve, photography is like sort of normal life, right? I mean, nothing dramatic has happened except mm -hmm. maybe it's a little cold. And then you're in this, you know, you're in this crucible where there's a pandemic, you're covering that, you're covering the economic crisis. And then, of course, very, very significantly, um, as you have also noted, you start covering the presidential campaign and your image of the debate lands on the cover. And then into 2021, you have that iconic image of the Bidens um, and Harris and everybody walking up the steps. You took the two images of Biden getting vaccinated. I believe those one and those two, you know, it's like obviously a shift. Um, you know, the, what I mean, you went through that, um, you know, tell us about that because you went from some sort of I mean, I know that there's no such thing as normal, actually, but the idea <laughs> of normal was there. And then, yeah, it's very subjective. Um, well, it was very interesting to navigate these uh, different environments especially during the pandemic, like they're stressful enough in a normal sitting uh, without like everybody wearing masks and practicing social distancing and getting tested every day. Um, so that was that was pretty uh, intense um, uh, and, and, and stressful um, just to uh, to do it. Uh, 
like when I when I was covering uh, Biden before uh, inauguration, um, we would get tested like every morning, and that like very early in the morning, and the, like the whole pool uh, journalists, including photographers, it was mandatory to get tested every every morning. Sometimes we would get tested like at six in the morning, or like sometimes five a.m. or seven a.m. And um, and then you're working like you know like the pool, we're all on the same bus, so we all have to be like very careful and very cautious and 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 not do anything irresponsible. And then when we're shooting alone, like next to each other, we need to be aware of like each other, basically. Yeah, so it was very challenging, and everybody, like, of course, wants to, uh, no one wants to get sick, and no one wants to make anyone sick, and, and the fear of being a spreader was, was actually a burden, you know, um, so, and you sometimes, like, I go see my friends in the park, and I see, like, someone, uh, making fun of me because I'm wearing my mask and they were like, we're outdoors. Why are you wearing your mask? And I was like, I'm not doing it just for myself, but for other people that I meet every day on my job. Uh, so, uh, it was, it was interesting. And then inauguration at the, the, the Wednesday, January 20th, it was freezing. I was on the Capitol Hill from like five thirty in the morning until like 4 PM. And it was so cold and, and uh, on the east front side, it was a lot of sitting and waiting because the stage was on the other side. And, and my job was basically to get the Bidens and the Harris are um, uh, arriving and, and then sending pins off and then uh, reviewing the troops and then departing afterwards. So that was that was like a lot of sitting and waiting. But um, I was lucky to get the cover of the integration section in, in the Times paper the following day. Um, and the final debate uh, was actually the f first and only time I photographed uh, Trump. That's right. I mm. saw that other picture of that's actually literally the only image you have on your portfolio of Trump. Yeah. Um, which is like, I, I don't know, but I thought, I think it would have been uh, I would have loved to cover the Trump administration. Uh, well, you did. You did cover the protests and the Muslim travel ban at JFK. So you photographed the other side well, of yes, the Trump administration. I, yes, but, uh, yes. <laughs> the recipients. That's, that's true. Um, and uh, yeah, being being in in the same room with like everybody else, it was not just photographers and and politicians, but also like guests and other people. Um, and it, it was very uh intense uh but i'm glad everybody was safe and no one got sick as far as i know uh i'm glad i didn't get sick <laughs> uh so um no real real glad that series happened um you know i want to um make sure we have time to talk about uh some of the things you do get asked about quite often uh but i would like to talk about it in a different way you know i listen very closely to the real photo show podcast and that's mm -hmm. an excellent, uh, almost an hour-long interview. So hopefully people can um, uh, listen to that. It's episode 107. But of course, you have been um, interviewed both about uh, your life in Egypt and then the Northern Light series. Um, you know, the questions about coming over from Egypt, the conditions of exile, the limbo of in-between. And also, of course, as you pointed out, those were taken, I think a lot were taken with the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so very much sort of that in the moment documentation that ends up being a project. Uh, and then once you're in the U.S., you know, you're documenting uh, perhaps Egyptian Americans, but also broadly American Muslims. In that series, the most familiar name I, uh, face I see, of course, is Linda Sarsour. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got this, you know, you've got images in Ramadan, a road trip. And then, of course, what becomes a two page feature in the Times, I believe, about Muslims possessing guns, right? And we all understand um, self-evident why that's a very particular sort of inversion, uh, given the amount of hysteria around uh, Muslims in the world, and certainly in America. The idea that American Muslims would also use the Second Amendment to say, well, it means I can possess a gun as well is 
and you know you've talked about how of course they've received harassment as a result but also like kind of quite a stunning um image series of images um and then in one of your interviews you talked about you know there was a there was a back and forth about you know this idea of photographing what you know right and then sort of the conundrum that that might mean you get might assigned to that all the time right so it might be that okay the egyptian coverage or the muslim coverage or the american muslim coverage is what you get assigned and it's pretty clear from your interviews that you also want to you know uh do many other things as well and then one thing i was struck by is um you have a quite a few images of the hasidic uh, jewish community um in uh, new york which is of course a very particular community visually also quite striking in all sorts of ways you know some of them are just the hasidic community in brooklyn going about normal life one of them is at a protest um, at the united nations because also uh, the hasidic community some of them oppose uh, the state of israel for a different perhaps political reason um and then i also noticed that you took a picture of jason conblu who is with jewish insider but he specifically was i think attacked by his own community because he was covering the protests against the pandemic from the community right so there's an interesting thing there because that's definitely you photographing a community that's not yours right although um i bring the hasidic community up also because you know there are documentaries uh, about the community and their isolation from sort of mainstream new york and in some ways that's often the language used around muslims in america that somehow they are also a people apart because of their um you know because of their path of daily ritual i was assigned to take his portrait uh actually it was last minute uh i think the day after he was attacked and i didn't really get to talk to him like extensively but uh it was but he was attacked by his own community which is why i bring it up because you're covering your community but your coverage is welcome well you would be surprised and like by like how sometimes uh well first let me put it this way i don't really think there is a community communities are not a monolith right like when you talk about muslim americans it's not just one community it's different communities like bengali muslims or uh indians or pakistanis or west africans um uh, nigerians egyptians turkish i was going to say as you pointed out in your interview also the single largest mm-hmm. community is african american which is not really part of the discourse yeah and yeah so the community these communities are not monoliths um but the idea was when i when i approached like when i in in the beginning when i started freelancing in new york and i i had this conversation with one of my editors who would assign me to cover muslim american stories and then i said but i want to cover other stories and it's that idea of like insider versus outsider and and stuff like that it was like in graduate school i've done like extensive research um about that and the conclusion is if you know if you do your homework if you know what you're going to photograph and report and it's what's called knowledge based journalism you do your literature review and i remember like one assignment um it was in chicago i was working with the associated press and i was covering uh food injustice in south side chicago which is like heavily uh black community and latino as well uh i told my editor that i need some time to like um immerse myself in in this community before starting taking any pictures or asking questions because i wanted to understand the dynamics the sensitivities uh and how to uh present these um people basically So uh I I don't think I think the last time like I now I'm working on a story uh about Muslims in in the United States it's but it's like a very very specific story and and it, I think it's kind of like sensitive so I don't I I don't think I'm um I cannot really disclose it at this point uh but um 
I don't really think the last time I was assigned to a Muslim American story over the past year. Uh, I don't think that happened. You're also so, defining your own choices more now, right? Because you're doing more self-initiated projects. Yes, uh, basically. Uh, but otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm a news photographer, so I, I do what I'm assigned to do. Um, but the, the, the thing is, like, you see all these Western photographers uh, parachuting in countries like Syria, Libya, Yemen, uh, India, Kashmir, right? Sudan, um, and taking all these photos in different different parts of Africa, um, and taking all these problematic photos because they don't know what they're photographing, right? And uh, when I was even like when I lived in Europe, sometimes I would just go visit Paris. I speak a little bit of French. But I, I thought I I found it like r- profoundly difficult to further take pictures when you don't really understand the language, let alone the culture. Mm. So are you you're not a tourist? You're a journalist. So that requires a certain level of knowledge and 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 familiar familiarity with with the culture, language, the sensitivities, the dynamics, right? Um, and and that's what I try to do whenever like I'm covering a community I don't belong to. Uh, like I don't think I belong to the Muslim American community in, in in the United States. I belong to a very specific community, right? My friends, the people I uh, spend Ramadan with, right? And and uh, yeah, like for example, even if if in Egypt. I belong to a very specific community in Egypt. I don't belong to the entire country. Like, for example, if I go to Siwa, I don't really understand that Siwa is an oasis in, in, in the Western desert. I don't really understand the culture. And they're, for, they're like Amazigh for the most part. So I don't really know their language, <laughs> basically. Um, but it's I think it's just like a post-colonial enterprise, uh, just like, privileged like upper middle class people or who, who can afford traveling and making exotic photos that can make it to uh, western news outlets uh, they're the people who do most of the work but I think there's also an ongoing conversation about that and 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 some of the editors are act- actively doing something about it um, so I don't discourage people from covering other communities they don't belong to, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it the right way. Just do your homework. Um, and I think the first thing someone can do is learn, is to learn how to be empathetic. Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, we're journalists, but at the same time, we work in a very artistic format, which is photography. So that makes us artists in a way. And I think artists are like prophets. If you don't have a good heart, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know the people you're listening to, you're speaking with, you're photographing, I don't see a point of doing it. That's beautifully said. Um, I know you can't be too specific about this, but do you have any hopes to at some point go back to Egypt and take images there again. Absolutely, I have, I have a notebook uh, with tens of story ideas, fully researched, ready to be reported and photographed. Uh, that I'm willing to do once I'm able to go back. Or maybe if I, maybe if I'm not, maybe if I. I hope you're able to go back. First of all, me too. But maybe if that doesn't happen, maybe I can also to see your parents. I mean, I get to see them in in uh, UAE uh, from time to time. Oh, okay, time to time. Right, right. But at this point, like, I really care more about the stories I tell than my name as a photographer. So if that means that I can do them in a different capacity as maybe an editor and assign someone else to uh, do these stories. I don't really find any problem with that. Well, as someone who's followed your um, image making of within America for the last uh, year plus, 
uh, that work is beautiful and I look forward to it more, but definitely looking forward to work from you about Egypt as well in whatever capacity the future brings. That Thank you. Yeah. I'm actually working on a script uh, so that will take place between Egypt, Europe and the United States. Okay, fantastic. Um, hopefully we'll, I'll, maybe in the next few years I'll start working on it. Excited to see that. Well, Amir, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know that there are many aspects of what you've experienced and what you've talked about that photographers in Bangladesh uh, can very much relate to. Um, the universality of certain experiences are that some of the things you face, some of the things you work on, they happen just as regularly in Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, Alexandria, Egypt, and everywhere else. So I think young photographers will really look forward to hearing this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.